0: We also very much care about not necessarily investing with a gender lens, but with an openness to diversity at large, and that's diversity of lived experiences. And so we've backed veterans, we've backed multiple persons of color. What's so cool about the first three and soon fourth unicorn that we've been either a Series A or Series Seed investor of in the past five years is that all four of those companies have a female founder.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Fintech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech, business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. My guest today is Soraya Darabi, co-founder and general partner at TMV, a venture capital fund with over $100 million in assets under management that aims to back early-stage founders building businesses beyond the bottom line. In this episode, we discuss breaking into tech, how Soraya found herself at the very center of the digital media and startup land almost two decades ago, and how it led her down the path of entrepreneurship and investing. Purpose Driven Investing, TMV's mission to find extraordinary returns in businesses that deeply care about the triple bottom line, and the importance of backing entrepreneurs with a diversity of lived experiences, FinTech startups as a driving force for financial inclusion, and some examples of amazing companies building businesses that drive financial inclusion around the world. Fundraising lessons, learning to love the fundraising process, what Soraya learned in the process, and even how she found herself raising most of TMV's second fund while pregnant, and just a lot of super interesting stuff. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the very eloquent Soraya Darabi from TMV. All
2: right, well, Soraya... Thank you so much for joining us on the FinTech Leaders podcast. Uh, I've been a fan for a while, so I'm definitely excited to have you here. How are you doing today?
0: Miguel, thank you so much for having me and for saying my name the right way. You are the first podcast host to ever do that. I'm doing very well. Um, I'm also a fan. I think I'm the one that added you as a contact on LinkedIn after reading the news about your fund. So thank you so much for having me.
2: Thank you, thank you. Me- means a lot. Um, so I, I do want to hear about your background because uh, you, you do have quite a unique uh, story, and you went from, you know, of all places, the New York Times to being an entrepreneur, and then to launching uh, TMV. But tell us, you know, paint us the picture of how this whole journey evolved.
0: Well. There's no through line, I'll warn you in advance, and I'll try to keep this short because when I listen to podcasts, I find the bits about the future so much more interesting than the bits about the past. But I will say that um, I'm proud of my background. It began in corporate media, as you mentioned. When I was a college student, I interviewed to intern at the Washington Post newspaper, and they said, no, but we'll give you one at thewashingtonpost.com. At the time, I thought that was a big rejection, but it was actually life's protection because it introduced me to the world of digital media and convergence. That was in 2004. I went to New York with that job on my resume and luckily landed at the right place at the right time for Condé Net, as it was called back then. It's now Condé Nast Digital, working in marketing and communications um, for the digital properties and Boy, oh boy, did I time it right. Because just as I was becoming obsessed with Dig and social news, uh, Condé acquired Reddit. Reddit, of course. So I was lucky enough to write that press release, interview the founders of Reddit for their quotes, sent it to the only tech journalist I knew at the time, Michael Arrington. And it became one of the most read stories on TechCrunch that year. And I'll never forget it. I mean... Mike and the Reddit founders, as a thank you, invited me to some events in New York City, like the original New York Tech meetup. And what struck me back then was that there were no women in the room, which I found to be electrifying and awesome because it meant that I would become an anomaly for walking the walk and talking the talk. I was deeply passionate about technology and how it was changing absolutely everything. Uh, The New York Times uh, caught wind of some of my work A colleague of mine left Condé to go to the New York Times, suggested I interview. So I did. And um, I was the first manager of Buzz Marketing, uh, which then became the first manager of social media for the New York Times. I was 23 years old. This is before anyone knew how powerful it would be. Otherwise, they would never have given me the job. But um, again, right place, right time. A lot of luck in life. And it's what you do with that luck that matters. I truly think that. Um, And so I was tasked with teaching journalists how to use social platforms to disseminate their news. I was tasked with working with sales dev to figure out quantifiably what do we do with this new audience. It was the inverse demographic of the print readership. And then I was tasked with trying to authentically represent the times through the voices of journalists across a multitude of platforms, but not not singularly. Um, This was with a big team. And it was really amazing to work with the digital team of the New York Times in the 2009 era, 2008, right when Obama was becoming elected. It was just an incredible force of individuals who were similarly mission-driven, incredibly brilliant, kind of working in concert to make something bigger than themselves happen. And those folks, many of them, I run into every single day in the startup universe. Just was texting with one a few minutes ago, Parle Singh. She's a partner at Initialized now, and we look at a lot of deals together, but she was a product manager on the video side when I was on the social media desk at the New York Times. That's one of probably 12 examples. I left that job to work for a cloud computing startup that my partner at our firm, TMV, Darshan, co-founded called Drop.io. Not everyone knows what to call it. A lot of people say Drop.io. We often say... It was Dropbox, except not Dropbox. It's kind of the joke. Um, that company, not thanks to me, thanks to the founder, very much so. Founder Sam sold to Facebook, um, but there was a great crew of folks who worked there. I was there for about seven months. But it was just enough time to really understand the inner workings of a startup and through osmosis to realize that I too could be capable of raising capital for a product-driven business. I then moved into advising startups, and one of those startups um, asked me to join as a co-founder, and so I did. That company was called Foodspotting. It was the first of a few geolocation social and mobile apps. Remember Somolo? Some people do. That was like a big thing in 2010, to be in the iTunes store. So we helped uh, food enthusiasts find their best dish no no matter where they traveled in the world. That company sold to OpenTable. Open Table, later merged with Priceline. There was liquidity in that acquisition that helped me become an angel investor. And then my background, Miguel, starts to sound a lot like yours. You know, you've got the Wharton and the finance and the banking. I don't have that, but you know the rest of the story. So you start to angel invest in companies. It becomes addictive. You love adding value. For me, I could tell startups pretty easily how to partner with big corporate companies like media organizations, I could tell product-minded tech founders in Silicon Valley, you know, what omni-channel marketing was all about. And I had a niche as an individual. And so I invested in about 20 companies over the next decade. At time of publication, the IRR is in the 200% range. So did okay. Backed several unicorns and realized that maybe this track record could turn into a fund. So flash forward to 2016, I'm grabbing dinner with my partner, Marina, um, and she has really kick-ass background, is one of the only women to help take a mobility business public. She comes from a Greek family with a 200-year-old shipping company called Dorian. So Marina and I got together and we realized with my access to founders and her growth expertise, not to mention she's you know embedded into the world of impact investing, maybe there was an opportunity for us to thematically come up with a fund that could invest in founders like ourselves. And so that's what we did. And I guess the rest is history.
2: So yeah, I, I feel very privileged to be having this conversation because you—you've definitely, you've been there at some seminal moments, particularly for those of us who follow the tech space and have been following for the last two decades. But that's, as you said, that's the past. Thinking ahead, you are now co-leading TMV, where you're investing. You know, when you make an investment, is a You have a 10 year horizon. Right. And and part of what drives your thesis, uh, you know, as as I was reading is that you look for businesses and founders are building beyond the bottom line. What does that mean to you?
0: So, beyond the bottom line to us is referring to the classic um, double or triple bottom line that folks talk about in the world of impact. But we're very careful at TMV to not classify ourselves as your grandfather's ESG sleeve or a sort of web 1.0 version of impact investing, if you will. Because unfortunately, when you say impact next to the word venture capital, people start to discount your potential returns. They think you need to take a haircut or you're at a somewhat of a handicap if you're looking for the world's best companies and also deeply care about that bottom line. And we say no, that these two terms are not mutually exclusive. And within the world of venture, there are so many examples of purpose-driven businesses that have the potential to dramatically shape the way we live and work, and for whom we care. And so at TMV, the way that we packaged this with our first fund is that we focused mostly on the care economy in Fund One, tech-enabled sustainable solutions, and the future of work. And we called it the future of living well. But we recognized between fund one and fund two, and there was a big jump. Our first fund was meant to be a 10 million, ended up being eleven and change. Our second fund was meant to be sixty. it ended up being sixty five. Now we have about hundred million under management at TMV. And we noticed as we were starting to package fund two, that we couldn't, in this day and age, responsibly talk about purpose-driven investing while eliminating the world of financial inclusion. And for us, and this very much kind of caters to your podcast, and what you care about, Miguel, fintech is the most important sector in venture capital today. We all know that one out of $3 last year and the year before of all venture combined went to fintech. And so with that in mind, and also thinking about the broadening wealth gap in America, we thought as purpose-driven investors, there's nothing more responsible than helping to decrease that gap and offer financial literacy through the tools of investing. And so that is how we ended up as being a holistic purpose-driven fund covering now five verticals out of TMB fund two.
2: And out of the founders that you've backed, you know, not, I'm not talking about the company, but about the person, would you say there are any commonalities uh, (laughs) amongst uh, the entrepreneurs?
0: So at the New York times, we would call that a leading question. Um, No, it's a (laughs) very good question. Um, We internally, have a mandate to invest with parity in mind. So about 50% of our founders are women, 50% are men, or more importantly, if you can slice it and dice it a different way, 77% of our fund one companies had a woman at the helm. Meaning if there was a co-founding or you know three or four founder type business, 77% of them had at least one woman. So that's pretty cool. We also very much care about not necessarily investing with a gender lens, but with an openness to diversity at large. And that's diversity of lived experiences. And so we've backed veterans. We've backed multiple persons of color. What's so cool about the first three and soon fourth unicorn that we've been either a series A or series Seed investor of in the past five years is that all four of those companies have a female founder. So we're pretty proud of our track record People mistake us as a fund that only backs women because Marina and I are the two GPs and because we're women, obviously. And we're trying to skirt around that by letting the data speak for itself and then secondarily piping up and saying, oh yeah, we also care a lot about impact.
2: I I think most or every investor should learn from you guys is the, have you seen the industry evolve and... a direction that, you know, is satisfactory to you?
0: Mm-hmm. No. No, because we've had <laughs> the 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 sobering dystopian data for I don't know, like 7 years now that 2% of venture capital goes to one type of person and nobody does a damn thing. And when I say nobody, I mean the arbiters of capital. And I don't know. I have a million views as to why that is, but I actually feel like talking about it in some ways, only further perpetuates what's going on. And it's because if people think that this is, I don't know, a, a plaguing issue, then it starts to be equated to charity or philanthropy or let's get, you know, DEI capital to work to help women when actually it is the biggest market opportunity that people are overlooking. I mean, just to kind of double down on what I said a second ago, we've backed three unicorns already in the past five years that have a woman founder at the helm, and soon we're about to announce a fourth. I mean, that's a lot of money that people are missing out on because they're allocating their dollars elsewhere. And so the more that we can help shape that narrative and spin it into the positive, the better I think it'll be for all. So do I think that the industry is doing the right thing or or making necessary changes? Absolutely not. But pretty soon they'll have to. We'll have to.
2: So let's zoom in a little bit on... Fintech and specifically financial inclusion, um, you know, before jumping on the interview, you know, we emailed a little bit. And, and I know that you, you also take the founder's point of view and you think about how are early stage founders themselves navigating this financial inclusion space. You've told us a little bit from your investor point of view. But how are how are founders uh, within financial inclusion, you know, kind of navigating and, and thriving in the industry?
0: Well, ever since we announced and put a flag in the ground that we care a lot about not just fintech. And when I say fintech, I'm referring to all of the companies that have had, you know, demonstrably awesome exits in the past 10 years or wobbling exits, you know, from the squares to the Robin Hoods. That's sort of like FinTech 101 in the web 2.0 to 3.0 era. But when I think about what it looks like at 2.0 or 3.0 beyond, I think about fin inclusion and I think about diverse founders making it so that you can both invest and learn at the same time. And so for us, like a Venn diagram overlapping, those are the concentric circles that we really sort of focus. And um, before starting this thesis, I started rereading Upton Sinclair, which I hadn't read since high school. But I I remembered loving that famous quote that it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. And I kept thinking about that quote and thinking about that quote kind of refers to, you know, the Valley and not changing their ways. And I realized that this is not really a literacy issue that we're, we're squarely focused on in terms of financial inclusion. It's an educational hurdle that people should care. And when we put two and two together. We recognize that the way to get people to care is for them to look at all of the upside that they would achieve using mechanisms that make it easier to both learn about finance and to invest in safe tools. And so examples of that include you know, a, a South Asian gentleman and his co-founder, um, Cameron and Adam, who created a business called Upside Phi that we're so proud to be investing in and for the second time. And uh, what Upside does, for instance, is it allows someone to um, pay down their student debt by consolidating loans. So we all know that there's $1.1 trillion of debt in America. And that's horrific. <laughs> and that the Biden administration was our last chance to think, wow, well, could they eliminate it all? But we can't. We're already you know, at, at the precipice of a, of a looming recession. And so what they did, which is quite smart, is they said, well, why don't we take, um, you know, the average debt repayer who has 10 plus loans, consolidate them and refinance the loan and stretch it from, let's say, a 10-year fixed into a 30-year. And the delta in which a student would save on a per month basis, on average, a $1,000 payment might go down to $750 a month. So that $250 saved, we will reinvest On their behalf, into potentially a robo-advisory or a safe, safe enough sort of ETF situation, so that they can learn about long-term yield and they can learn about compounding interest and they can see what they'll be saving for with retirement as one purview of success. And the idea is that for every ten thousand dollars of debt you have, they could help you save ten thousand dollars for retirement. So I was immediately attracted to this business not just because of the potential upside pun intended for a member, but also because of the way in which they're proactively focused on wealth creation and retirement is the long-term sort of milestone of success for the student, as opposed to paying down debt that feels Sisyphean. And another example, and I know we don't have time for me to, you know, shill my whole portfolio. So I'll be very careful,
2: but another <laughs> and, example. And, and by, that I'm- by the way, before you went to the other example, I, I need to check out their website. Uh, for personal reasons,
0: <laughs> okay. Oh my God! Well, let me let me you know, put my sale hat on um, upsidefi.com, and then we've got another company, Bridge Money, bridgemoney.co, um, started by a really terrific founder named Lalit Janik. He's based in Chicago, and Bridge Money is focused on a diverse population of people who are unbanked, even here in America, or maybe. They have credit cards with high interest rates and they don't recognize that they're getting themselves into debt with these credit cards. So it's really a debit card that helps you earn money. And it's not just cash back. It's about basically educating their audience on ways in which they can be saving from one card to the next and then allowing them to promote the card to their friends um, through the bridge app. So you open up a spending account, activates a visa, and then um, you basically earn coins think tokens for sharing the app with your friends and so in real time you can get 25 points or 25 coins on bridge for sharing the app with me and so it does two things one is it's not a predatory debit card and it doesn't sink you into some sort of you know mlm situation as a lot of first-time credit cards do where you find yourself increasing your levels of debt and needing to take out another card just to pay it off that unfortunately is a very real scenario in america Um, for lower middle income individuals. And so instead, it makes it sort of dead simple to understand what you're paying for and how you can be saving money on those things. But then also gives you an easy way by being a marketing sort of conduit for the business to be getting cash back on that debit. Anyway, I feel like your listeners are black belts in karate and all things fintech. And I'm speaking to them like they're green belts. But this business is just so intuitive and so smart. And, you know, I think Lalit is a tremendous founder. And so really, that's all it takes for us because we're seed investors and we'll, we'll take a big risk on a company.
2: So you, I guess most of your portfolio is in the U.S., but I know that you're starting to look at emerging markets, right? And yes. I'm, I'm proud to say that, uh, you know, in, in this podcast, we, we have guests from every corner of the world. And probably more importantly, we have listeners uh, in mm-hmm. like 100 countries. Uh, oh wow! So, yeah, so, I mean, sometimes it's just one listener, but it's still, you know, and sometimes it's several thousands from from you know small countries. Um, oh my goodness! But they they, I'm sure they would love to hear about your perspective, um, you know, and what's going on in the industry, financial inclusion in emerging markets.
0: Right. So we very much care about emerging markets and specifically non obvious emerging markets, and so we have as a fund invested in Australia. Singapore, the Philippines, Notre Dame, and then personally as an angel investor, I've invested in France a couple of times in Finland. And we're not ignoring the fact that the world has now equal access to opportunity because I feel like tech has been so democratized and there are smart investors everywhere that can add real value. So we don't try to compete with local VCs and also for tax reasons, which is boring, but true. You really don't want to own more than 10% of a business overseas. What a headache. And so we try to be great partners and complement a cap table. If a founder wants to bring us on for, let's say, 9% of their business at the seed round or the series A round, and we can diligence the opportunity with somebody local on the ground and partner by helping them with their GDM, their go-to-market strategy. That's where TMV plugs in best. And we've been lucky in the financial inclusion world to do that recently with um, a really cool BNPL that's also very community-centric in the Philippines called Plantina, P-L-E-N-T-I-N-A dot com. And it's the fastest growing fintech company of its kind in South Asia. Um, and they're expanding to Vietnam and um, soon elsewhere. And so, I mean, the Philippines alone, that's about 100 million people that didn't have previously an opportunity to even qualify for credit because they make, on average, like the average sort of person of the Philippines, that would qualify for Plantinas making $7 a month. That'd be like a teacher or a cab driver. And so what we're trying to do is help people build credit so that they can all of a sudden get a mortgage or sort of level up financially. And that's very important to the founders, Kevin and Earl. I know Earl through being a YGL in the World Economic Forum, and Kevin has this just badass background from Google. And they were really both locals, they're both Filipino, the right people to tackle this in the region. So I think what compelled us to invest in Plantina and to take that risk is knowing that the story was authentic, that they were the right people with the right model for this particular customer segmentation and then also believing that the TAM could grow because the Philippines alone would not be exciting potentially for a VC. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And um we recently uh had Greg Krasnov uh from Tonic who's also building, you know, fintech in in the Philippines and it seems like the the opportunity is just incredibly massive. And I see a lot of parallels with Latin America as well. Uh a uh, region very near and dear to my heart uh, sorry t- tell us maybe uh, a little bit about your your fundraising journey you know maybe some stories from from the road uh or th- the zoom calls you know? <laughs> uh, how is how is you know you started with uh eleven uh and change million dollar fund now you know you have over a hundred a u m but i'm I'm sure it wasn't easy
0: well, it wasn't easy but I actually learned to love fundraising in the process. So I can't complain about it because it taught me this whole different skill set and really allowed me to tap into storytelling which I hadn't done since I was a journalist. So in some ways I'm grateful for the experience and in other ways I you know shudder at the thought of going back to market. Uh, and, and and the only reason I shudder is because everything has become so competitive. When I started our first fund, it was a 2017 vintage. We were pre-marketing it in 2016. We had just done an SPV into a company that has since gone public and had you know, just a great track record. And we looked different and our story was different. And we were competing with only 50 other funds in that vintage. So if you look at Cambridge data, it's pretty darn easy to be in the top quartile uh, in 2017 because there's 50 <laughs> funds. And then last year, it it was closer to 500. So just in a period of five years, you know, competition is 10x. That's the only difference. And it's it's not that I'm bitter about that. It's just really hard to compare yourself to those crypto funds and the, you know, monster DPI, honestly DPI, that they're showing their LPs because everything is moving so fast and so furious in their world. But... From the standpoint of um, TMV, things are going great. I mean, we did a roadshow initially internationally. So we started our marketing process in 2020, did a couple international trips. Our story really resonates with international family offices, in particular with next-gens. Next-gens care. Sorry, when I say next-gen, I mean next-generation members of family offices mostly. So The the ones who will be
2: running uh, the family business in a few years
0: yeah yeah exactly and they care so much about purpose-driven investing purpose-driven investing um and actually in latin america especially so we're very very proud to have some terrific uh, latinos and latinas on our cap table well not cap table. i i still think like i'm a founder i still say cap table all well, you the are
2: time. you are a founder
0: yes yes i know yes i know <laughs> it's not nearly as stressful as being a founder i'll, I'll say that um, so that part was cool. The traveling was really interesting. Uh, fundraising took me to Greece and to Switzerland and, um, all of those trips were successful. Mexico. But then it, it quickly, for obvious reasons, moved to zoom and I was pregnant at the time. It was 2020. My daughter was born in July, 2020. And so as a pro, well, oh, thank you as a, as a, you know, pro con list as a pro is great to be on zoom and just, you know. Be munching on pineapple. I ate a whole pineapple every day when I was pregnant. Be munching on pineapple in between Zooms, fundraising for the business. That was pretty cool. But as a con, it's very hard as a storyteller, if that's your strength, to convey the nuances of what makes you special um, over Zoom. And so it's it's a different learned skill. But that's what my fundraising experience was like. It was a lot of Zoom and pineapple and international meetings. And then where we netted out is half our fund was backed by institutions, by banks, a hospital, a foundation, that all worked out as planned. But we wanted it to be a 50-50 mix of uh, family offices because we really do believe in the power of this next generation family office member who will honestly inherit a good chunk of the earth. And that's through real estate, that's through mobility businesses and supply chain businesses and retail businesses and packaging businesses. And they can offer us a leg up by allowing our young nascent startups to partner with the organizations that they come from, and they're more willing to do that because they are so mission aligned with the investments that we
2: make. Fascinating stuff, uh, and you know, I can I can relate in, in, in some ways. So, so I uh, one thing I always love to ask uh, folks who stop by the show is, you know, everyone has their mentors, the, the people who have extended a helping hand, who've been helpful and consequential in their own journeys uh when you think of your own story you know are there maybe a couple of folks who come to mind
0: when i'm asked this question on podcasts i always try to switch it up and thank a different person because i believe i've had a i've had the luck of having many mentors and not just like one singular person so you mentioned earlier miguel that you went to wharton and we shared in the pre podcast chat that we both are Huge fans of Adam Grant. Adam is an LP in my fund. He was an advisor to our first fund. I think he's still an advisor um, and he should be. He's incredible. Um, He's helped us with deal flow, with negotiations, with thoughts around our positioning, um, and, and genuinely sort of like rapid fire response in terms of advice. And so, oh, and, and he's helped us hire a couple of our team members. We're a team of 12 now.
2: That's incredible. So
0: very, very, very grateful to Adam.
2: Shout out to Adam um, Grant.
0: Shout out to Adam Grant. And then I don't know if I have a second. That's that's the one I want to go with today.
2: I love it. I love it. And, and how about flipping that coin? Do you, uh, what's your approach to people who want to be your mentees? Because I'm, I'm sure you're approached by uh, several men and women I'm sure a lot of women uh, look up to you. Do you try to also kind of give back?
0: Oh, as much as possible, uh, and my partner Marina too, and 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 the various partners at our firm, Evan, Darshan, our principals, Lucas and Emma. They they all do. Well, we have office hours. Our office is twenty second and Park, and uh, we try to carve out a day a month for founders to just come in, and we order sweet green or snacks. There's always snacks. And we just hang out and we hear people either share their idea for a company. Usually those founders are in the kind of like tinkering phase. And if they're students, you know, local students, or they just happen to be coming through New York, all the better. For schools, at least once a year, I do a big Zoom to MBAs or to engineering crews. So every year I speak to Chicago Booth, um, to Wharton students, but I I'm making a conscious point this year to try to bridge it out to the non-elite schools because I realized I fell into a trapping of my own bias. I would speak to these schools on Zoom and then our interns would come from those schools. And that's adverse selection on my part.
2: Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I, I started in community college and, you know, you you don't get a lot of guests like you there, but I remember we did a couple and it would just we're mean just the world. To awesome, but
0: my best friend, um, you know, I met her when she was at community college, and she's always talking to me about how it absolutely transformed her life. It sounds like it did for you, too.
2: Oh, um, yeah, so absolutely.
0: Yeah, that would be a dream. If, if there's anyone here affiliated with local community colleges, I'd love to come and speak.
2: So, yeah, thank you so much. Uh, this has been great. I, I, I learned a ton. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure we're going to get some some awesome feedback from from folks in the audience. Um, But thanks a lot. Uh, No doubt we'll be crossing paths. And and thanks for inspiring a lot of us.
0: Miguel, thank you so much for asking me to come and join your podcast. And I'm such a fan. And I know that there will be years of deal sharing between us. So thank you again. And hi to all your listeners around the world.
1: Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Soraya Darabi, General Partner at TMV. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and truly means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor Rafael Ostria for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host Miguel Armasa.